This is the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Hosted by Dr. Jana, a sex researcher and professor of human sexuality at NYU, and Joe Partavila, the guy who's a fan of sex. Here's Dr. Jana and Joe. Hey, Dr. Jana. Hello. Welcome to episode 11. Woohoo! I'm excited about that. Now you know I'm I'm not as active as you are. I don't get around as much. You just got back from Vegas or something. But I saw on Twitter that you you're hosting an event, another one of these yes. fancy events where you talk to the fans about sex and all fans. sorts of things, right? I talk to the other sex nerds and sex geeks okay. who like sexy science. Okay. Yes, but I do have an event coming up on December 14th mm-hmm. happening at the Hacienda Villa in Bushwick in Brooklyn. Okay. And the topic is non-monogamy. Specifically, what we know from science about whether humans are monogamous or non-monogamous, there's been a lot of debate about what is most authentic or most true to the human species. And so I'm going to go into some of the psychological, anthropological, sociological studies in and figure out, okay, where do humans land on this hmm. monogamy to non-monogamy spectrum? Wait, so you're going to host this? Yes, what, I. What do you know about non-monogamy? <laughs> I may know a thing or two. Really? Yeah. Did you get yeah. like a PhD in it or something? I may, I may have, yeah. So you can find information about this on Eventbrite or on uh, Facebook as Sex Science Social Non-Monogamy. And there will be links to my website as well on drjana.com. Uh, tickets are pay what you can with the suggested donation of 20 to 40 bucks. Right. And y- if you're not in Brooklyn, or you can't make it to the Hacienda Villa, we'll also be streaming that online on my Facebook page. And I've asked this before, everyone's clothed during this. Yes, everyone is clothed during this. This is a science-y conversation and lecture and discussion. There will be no nakedness. It's not a sex party. It's not going to turn into a sex party, as much as some people might All like right. that. All right. <laughs> you know, I, was, I was actually thinking about, what am I doing to 714? But then that came off the table. Uh, before we get started, what do we have coming up today? We're talking to Dr. Sophia Jawad-Wessel about about what happens to sexual activity during pregnancy and post-childbirth. Interesting. We've never done one of these pregnancy no, uh, segments before. No, we've not before. talked about sex around pregnancy at all. So wow. this should be interesting. All right, cool. The Science of Sex. Foreplay. All right, so I know this is the part of the show where we sort of discuss some of the dicks in the news <laughs> in terms of sexual harassment. But some good news, nothing's really come up. Since the last we saw each other. Yeah. He, you know, Matt Lauer was the last big bomb, and yeah. there were obviously a dozen or so uh, <laughs> creepy old white dudes who got, you know, snagged for sexual misconduct. Right, but nothing since has broken. No, no new news no. have broken since. Exactly. Yes. I mean, the people who were pervs and sickos, they're still, still pervs. They're still pervs and sickos. <laughs> yes. But there is some good news to come out of all of this. The House, you know, that place down in Washington that does nothing, they <laughs> voted to approve a required annual anti sexual harassment training for law. Lawmakers and aides. Because as you know, there's been a couple lawmakers in the news, like Conyers and Franken, who've had some issues with it. Possibly the new senator from Alabama. (laughs) Well, I'm pretty (laughs) sure he might be the next senator of Alabama. So the Senate's already done this, so this is a done deal. So do you think that's it? There'll be no longer sexual harassment <laughs> yes, in Washington? Yes, we have wiped sexual harassment <laughs> in Washington. Woo-hoo. No, but this is obviously, yeah, it's not going to prevent all cases yeah. of it. But it's bringing awareness and attention to the issue. And I, I'm sure some of those people are going to be like, oh, yeah. we have to go Sit and take this that. stupid training. But to some extent, it is 
I'm sure, going to have a net positive result. Let's hope so. Now, earlier I joked about the fact that you're an expert on non-monogamy and everything like that. But uh, I will say, I've I've always heard you talk, you you are always a big fan of safe sex. I am a big fan of responsible sexual behavior. But what that means to people is their own thing. So I I don't advocate for one way of having uh, safe sex that is right for everybody. I think people should be as informed as they can be about the risks out there in general, about their own personal risks, and also take into consideration their own level of comfort with risk. Because some of us are much more comfortable taking risks with our sexual health as well as anything else else in life, and others are not very comfortable taking risks. So I think all of those things should be taken into consideration as well as the level of safety uh, preferences of your partner and partners. Yeah, And so... I know this is a very long kind What are you of- doing with your hands? I don't even know. What is that? <laughs> what are you trying to describe there? I'm trying to describe the variability that exists okay. in the world out there for how I think people should be guiding their safer sex behaviors. All right. So condoms is one of those. Condoms of the, is of, definitely- of, of, As you're waving your arms, the condoms <laughs> yes. is in that cloud that you're moving. Definitely. But especially it- if you're having sex with a lot of different partners whose status you don't know. Well, a British company has developed what's called a smart condom. Well, yes, finally. So the, <laughs> we do need the, a smart condom. The condom has an IQ of, no, I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> it's called the i.con, and not only can it detect STDs, it can also rate your skills in bed. No way. Yes. Okay, tell me more about this. All right, the icon measures the number of calories burned during intercourse. So essentially, oh. it's a Fitbit, <laughs> Fitbit for your wiener. It's pretty cool. Does it measure the the calories burned by the wearer of the condom or their partner? I think it's just the wearer. It's just the wearer? Just the wearer. But it also measures the speed of a man's thrusts. So if you ever want to know how fast your pelvic thrusts are, uh-huh. okay. it takes care of how- I think that's a very, very important yeah. piece, of, ev- you've piece never, of information. You've yeah. never done that before. You've never like measured thrusts of a man, right? The, the, the speed of them? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the I, I assume no. so. And also how long the dude lasts. Okay. So it tells you that. And I just want to uh, be clear. It's not actually a condom, the smart condom. that They're just calling it that. It's literally just a band that fits around the base of your wiener. So when you wear your condom, you just put that at the bottom of it. Oh, so you just use a regular condom and then add this band. It's like a ring. Oh. Yes. Oh, I see. Okay. And so they're going to go on sale in the UK in January, but it seems pretty cool. You know, keep track of all that (laughs) stuff. I mean, yeah, sure. All of that information could be interesting and fascinating, and you could probably use it to improve your performance if that's or or change your performance if that's of interest. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you ever walk with you ever meet someone who has a Fitbit? Yeah, you know yeah, what yeah, they say? Of course. I got my two thousand steps in today. <laughs> so that person will be like, "Man, I got fifteen hundred thrusts in today." <laughs> yeah, and the number of calories yes. you could you could play around with all the different positions yes. and and see how that increases or decreases your calorie burn and whatnot. So yeah, I think that's all pretty cool. I mean, you kind of skipped over all of the SDI stuff, but I find that really fascinating. Well, I thought the thrust was more fun to talk about and everything like that. (laughs) I suppose. Yeah. But so the way I understand it is it has an antibodies filter, Mm -hmm. can alert the user when proteins or antigens that are typically found in some sexually transmitted infections are detected. After that, it logs it into the system. Interesting. I wonder, does like the iPhone alarm go off at that point while you're having sex? Like, eh, eh, eh. Or is it, or they say too late, it's too late for you? Well, I guess if you're using a condom, it doesn't really matter, right? So, uh, Well, yes. If you're using a condom, chances of transmission are much lower, I suppose. Yeah. But then the next day or afterwards, you can, you can check and be like, 
So, darling partner, I think you might want to go and get yourself checked. <laughs> Good. By the way, these things, I know you're making it sound very serious. I was more about the thrust, but they already have over 90,000 pre-orders for this wow. thing. This could be a game changer in the world of safe sex, I mean, don't you think? Potentially, yeah. Not only that, you could also get the speed of your thrust. I don't know if that's really important. I know that's a big key. And, and also, oh, also average velocity of those thrusts. Why is that so important? I don't know. Oh, it also tells you girth measurements, but I don't think that really girth matters. Girth measurements. That doesn't really matter. Right. No. Yeah. It's not the size of the boat. It's the motion of the ocean. Right. Right. Of course. For the majority of women, that is correct. Okay. That's what Thank data you. is. Thank that's, you very that's much. That's what research is showing. All right. There I, are some people for whom yeah. that matter matters, yes. Yeah, I think that's I think it's really overrated that whole thing. <laughs> anyway. Um Are you, you know, trying to like overcompensate here for something? No, I'm trying to move on to the next story oh, that I, I want to get to here, Dr. Jana. <laughs> okay. Um so you know, people make babies from mm-hmm. time to time, and that's a thing. And Johnny will yes. spit up on your coffee. I apologize. Sex is <laughs> yes, can lead to pregnancy. Now it's been reported from time to time that brand new mothers usually don't have the most amazing sex lives right away and we'll talk about that in a minute yes but there's one mom out there in washington state (laughs) she's got a three-month-old has no problems with that all right a couple was driving through washington they decided to get frisky with the three-month-old in the back seat and crashed the car into a tree wait what yeah. While they were driving, While what did they, they do? Driving. Was she giving him a blowjob or something? No. Here's the thing. 23-year-old Michael Tolkien, driving drunk, unfortunately. Oh, he was oh. intoxicated. When his girlfriend decided to climb on top of him naked. While, while he's driving. While he's driving. Okay. And somehow, Dr. Jana, this caused him to crash his no vehicle. Yes, Who would have thought, man. A naked woman hopping on top of him. While you're drunk. Driving. <laughs> he crashed into a tree. Oh, man. But the scary part is their three-month-old was in the backseat. Mm-hmm. The three-month-old is fine. Oh, good. Okay. Everyone <laughs> is fine. I mean, I'm not sure the three-month-old is going to be fine with parents like that. They True. don't seem to be the most responsible parents, like driving drunk and yeah. having sex during that. That road, by the way, uh-huh. was not like a straightaway. Way, it's one of the most dangerous mountain highways what? in Washington. So they really oh, amped yeah. up the sex level there. I mean, I'm really glad that three months after giving birth that this woman has a high sex drive and interest and they're having a healthy sex life. Yeah. But uh, in this case, sounds a little unsafe. Yeah. Yeah, just a little bit. Do you think we should talk about that with our next <laughs> guest about if whether it's okay if, they, if you've just had a baby to have sex while on top of a guy who's driving down a mountainous range? <laughs> oh my God. Just say yes or no. I won't bring it up. I promise you. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure what Dr. Sophia Jowd wessel is going to say about uh, that second part okay. of, of how the sex how? should be had okay. <laughs> after pregnancy. But yeah, I think. My, man, all your friends are killjoys. <laughs> I'm sorry. But yes, we should definitely talk about sex during and after pregnancy. Let's do it. The science of sex goes deeper. Earlier this year, two researchers at the University of Nebraska at Omaha published a review paper summarizing all we know from research about sexual behaviors during pregnancy and the year after childbirth. They combed through 56 empirical studies published in the academic literature since 1996 and found that, in general, there was a gradual decline in vaginal intercourse over the course of pregnancy in the first couple of months post-childbirth. Here with us today to discuss these findings and everything else we know about sex during and after pregnancy is Dr. Sophia Jawad-Wessel, the 
lead author on this review paper and an author on several empirical articles on the topic. Dr. Sophia Jawad-Wessel is an assistant professor in the School of Health and Kinesiology at the University of Nebraska at Omaha and the associate director of the Midland Sexual Health Research Collaborative. She got her PhD in health behavior from the School of Public Health at Indiana University in Bloomington, and her research focuses on the sexual health of women and couples as they transition into parenthood. She uses a sex-positive and pleasure-inclusive approach to providing medically accurate, comprehensive sexuality education to students and the local Omaha community, and also fights for women's rights and reproductive justice through community service, providing expert testimony, successfully organizing comprehensive sex education in Omaha public schools, and fighting against restrictive anti-choice legislation in Nebraska. Unsurprisingly, Dr. Jowd Wessel has won a bunch of awards for all her research and outreach efforts, and her 2016 TEDx Omaha talk, The Lies We Tell Pregnant Women, has been viewed over three million times. Dr. Jowd Wessel, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast. Thank you for having me. Okay, first of all, after reading that whole bio of yours, holy crap, you're a busy woman. And you're also a mom of two, right? I am. I have an eight-year-old and a -a two-and-a-half-year-old. How how do you get all this done? Are there multiples of you somewhere? (laughs) Um, Late at night um, in my basement when everyone is sleeping, (laughs) I think is the answer to that question. Wow, that's impressive. (laughs) Okay, so tell us why this topic. Why is this a topic of research for you? stumbled on it, actually. So um, a lot of folks think that I chose this topic because I'm a mom, Mm. but actually my interest in work in this area really predates my kids by at least a a couple years, if not more. I'm interested in this idea of studying sexual experiences when reproduction is removed from the equation, right? So especially for women. Women are often taught that sex is for making babies. Mm. Well, what happens when there's already a bun in the oven, you know? (laughs) And do you continue to have sex, sex? You know, are we one of the only mammals that continues to have sex even though we're pregnant? You know, what does society think about these women Mm. in terms of sexuality? Examining sexuality during pregnancy and early parenthood really helps us understand our attitudes about women's sexuality more clearly. So when we look at this population in terms of the kinds of sex that they're having and the way that our society looks at them when we juxtapose pregnancy and sexuality or new motherhood and sexuality, what does that tell us about our culture more broadly? So I think it's it's a fascinating population and topic. And it's also really largely ignored in a lot of ways. Um, Mm. And I I am a champion of the underdog, you know, so when (laughs) I see something's been been neglected, I want to go for it. When I first started talking about being kind of interested in this area, when I was just dabbling in it, and I would have, even from like sex researchers, right, being Mm. like, oh, like, that's kind of boring. And I was like, (laughs) why is it boring? And I was really interested in why people thought it was not a good area to get into. And a lot of them just were like, it's not very sexy, you know, like, it's not fun and exciting. And I was like, why? So I wanted to dive into why people responded that way. I think it's really reflective of our culture, and I think it's interesting. Like, I'm going to make it sexy, <laughs> damn it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you've done some of this empirical research yourself, and then you published this paper at the beginning of this year that reviewed 56 different studies. Tell us a little bit about these studies. Like, where were people from? Were these pregnant people post-pregnancy? Were they just the uh, women themselves or the partners and so on? publication of study was very dear to me. Um, It was such a challenge going through and doing this project, but I'm really happy that I did because I feel like it gave a lot of um, teeth to some of what I already knew and helped me make the case for doing studies in this area the way that I've been doing it, right? So yeah, I'm really happy to hear that you read it and are interested in hearing about it. So in terms of the studies that were included, they're actually very geographically diverse. Um, The U.S. had several studies, but um, just as many came out of Turkey. We had studies 
studies that were included from Nigeria, Australia, Thailand, Pakistan, China, Canada. Wow. It was really all very, over. very diverse. Yeah, Wait, all, all those over. countries did study about pregnancy sex? Yeah. Like, the, the stuff that comes out of Turkey and Iran, I think, is particularly interesting because they're some of the most provocative, you know? And mm-hmm. so we have our own biases about how other regions, other cultures view this. Um, especially the Muslim sexuality. world, yeah. Yeah, especially the Muslim world, right? And I cite... Um, you know, the folks in Turkey really often in my work because they've done some really interesting stuff. And as far as the other areas, so most of the studies only included the pregnant women, okay, or mothers. Mm. Just about all of them had a requirement that to be a participant in these studies, you had to be partnered with a man. Oh, so no same-sex couples, no single women having kids. There are some studies that look into women who are partnered with other women, but those didn't fit in my criteria for this particular review. So either they um, they weren't looking at sexual behaviors, essentially, you know, so I didn't get to include them, but there are very, 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 very few of them. Like, mm. I could probably name, like, the two or three that, that touch on this topic. Gotcha. And then partners, like, very few studies do this, right? So regardless of the gender of the partner, um, we have, I want to say, just a very small handful that, that collect data directly from the partner. Some of the studies will ask the pregnant women to tell us about their partners mm-hmm. and what they're experiencing, but it's not directly from the partners themselves. And then the studies that we do have that include partners, very few of them actually pair up the pregnant person with their partner in their analysis. So I think my study was the first one that did this in this population, so where we actually looked at the dyad. Got you. Okay, so let's talk about what you found. What happens to, let's start with vaginal intercourse over the course of pregnancy? So we do see this kind of steady decline from pre-pregnancy into the third trimester with the most kind of sharpest decline happening in that third trimester. But I think it's really important for us to highlight, though, that we're looking at frequency of one activity over a nine-month period and trying to find patterns. And the only one we, we can really see is that slow, gradual decline, right? But we're not collecting data every week from all of these participants. So this is, this is looking at all of those studies together. Mm-hmm. Um, we will often ask participants, how often did you have sex in the past month? But we'll only ask them that once per trimester. And Mm. we tried to see what's happening across in this whole group. So there's a lot of wiggle room. So I've worked with enough pregnant women and expectant partners to think that this pattern is is probably generally accurate, that there is a slow decline, but it's not nearly as dramatic as what most folks think. It's not this like, okay, we're pregnant and now it's a struggle to get in the bedroom and be intimate with one another. It's that as you get closer and closer to the due date, there are things that are going to be happening that are going to make sexual behaviors less frequent. Like what? With vaginal intercourse, there is a pretty sharp decline when you get to the third trimester, but it depends on where in the third trimester you look at too, right? So depending on when the study collected their data. So when they asked you in the last week or in the past month, it really depends on when they're collecting that data. So the closer you are to the due date, there are very few women who report penetrative sexual activity during like the week of their due date. Mm. So if you collect it only at one point and it was at the very end, you're going to see a very sharp decline. And I think that makes sense, right? Nice. You know, so, yeah, because um, they start to hate their partner at that point. They're like, when is this thing going to come shit. out of me? I don't think so. <laughs> no? Okay. It's hating their partner. I really don't. I don't no, think okay. that anything, in, both in my experience working with this population and looking at the evidence, suggests that. I think it's a lot more like, I'm really uncomfortable. Like, mm. I have a really large belly. There's a lot of weight on my pelvic floor. I can barely keep my urine in my bladder, you know, <laughs> right. when I need it to. And it just, my back hurts. My breasts hurt. Things just 
are uncomfortable, mm-hmm. right? And so even if you're wanting to be sexual, like the thought of like moving your body is difficult, mm-hmm. you know? Right. So like it's just not for a lot of folks, not everybody, it's just not the right time. <laughs> it's just not the right time. So I, I do think that, that those declines are, are there. I think the decline that we see from pre-pregnancy to the first trimester can have a lot to do with those early pregnancy symptoms, you know, like you're feeling nauseous, there's an extreme fatigue that happens. Mm. But even then, it's not a very sharp decline. So I, I think that it's that's important to emphasize. Do we know to what extent some of this decline is because women are sort of intentionally abstaining from sex because of their pregnancy? Or is it more about these physical kind of uncomfort or, or yeah. fatigue or... From my like researcher perspective, that's hard for me to say definitively, because I don't I don't think that the research on this is strong enough as a whole just yet. You know, we do see evidence to suggest a relationship between the attitudes that we have about having sex during pregnancy and the frequency of sexual behaviors, which suggests that there are cultural or psychosocial factors at play here. So for some folks, having concerns about having sex is going to make you're less likely to want to have sex. And there are studies that show that some women attribute these fears to why they are avoiding sex. And there's there's even, I think the study was out of Nigeria, where men also talk about this, that like because of their worries, they're wanting to not initiate sexual activities with their partner. What are some of those worries? What do people think sex can do to the pregnancy? So in early pregnancies, so the studies that collected data from couples in their first trimester, a lot of it is miscarriage. They're worried that having sex is going to um, cause a miscarriage and terminate the pregnancy. Later on in, in the third trimester, we see concerns about preterm labor. Are we going to rupture the you know, the membranes, the sack of water where the fetus is? And are we going to, is it going to hurt my partner? Is it going to you know, feel bad? Those kinds of concerns come up. I will point out though, though, that like, um, this is only in one study and it was, it was my study. So it's one sample, but it's not not just fears that are driving this relationship between attitudes and sexual behavior. So in my study, I found that in dyadic relationships in early pe- pregnancy, men reported having difficulty finding their partner sexually desirable because of the pregnancy specifically. Mm. Yeah, right? and people don't talk about this very often, yeah. but it's a very real thing for yeah. a certain number of men, right? Yeah. And in my sample, it was it was half of the couples and the, the women who were partnered with these men accurately perceived that difficulty that they were having. And these were couples that were very early pregnant, so 8 to 12 weeks pregnant. Hmm. So it's barely even showing. Yeah, they're not even showing yet. You know, So if, if there's physical changes, it's usually things like my breasts are swollen, right? And it controlled for other pregnancy symptoms. So like I set aside the, the factor of like she's throwing up a whole lot, right? So right, yeah. Us, that's yeah, a turn off. Yeah, that's a turn off, right? It's a turn off for the women too, you know, like I feel gross, you know. Sure. Even when you control for that. Yeah, so there's still a significant number of men who were who reported this and it wasn't just like I kind of agree, it was I strongly agree, right? Um, this tells us that there are cultural influences about what you're allowed to find sexually desirable, what is sexy and now that your partner is going from like your partner to a future mother, what is, how does that impact the relationship? How does it impact how we engage sexually? And I would like to suggest that it probably has an impact. We just don't know how, how big of an impact yet, but I think it warrants us to pause and think about. Wow. In your study, about 50% of the guys experience these yeah. kinds of thoughts. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it makes sense. Think about what we said at the top. You talked about how there's not much sex research. So all these people who aren't scientists or doctors, they're not educated about having sex with pregnancy. So think yeah. about it. If the, if the science world basically ignores it, don't you think regular laymen will be like, I don't know much what's going on down there, so I'm just going to leave it alone. <laughs> Absolutely. And when you look at like media, we kind of... We desexualize pregnant women, or we kind of like fetishize pregnancy right. or motherhood, like MILFs, yeah. right? I don't right. know if I'm allowed to use the F word. You can use them okay, all. But yeah. Yes, you can use them all. <laughs> but like, yeah, a mother I'd like to fuck, as if most mothers are not fuckable, you know? Like, right. they're not sexually desirable. So we have this like discordance between parenthood, motherhood specifically, and sexuality. We don't like to combine the two. Mm. And when we do, it's in this like kinky, fetishist way you right. know like it's strange it's strange we have a we have our culture has some things to think about in this area <laughs> yeah and there's definitely that disconnect between a woman who's sexy and and fuckable and a mother yeah. and once your partner turns into this mother role then she's no longer she should not any longer be a source of sexual desire right yeah or that i at least having like to grab it's something to grapple with i might get over it and we might be just fine right but it's something that it is a hiccup at some point for a lot of individuals yeah. mm-hmm. but it's a mind fuck too though if you think about it say if you go on a bus you know how they have a, a seat set aside it's mm-hmm. for old people or pregnant women mm-hmm. so Absolutely. it's one of those things where it's like i think psychologically i don't know if we were able to process it because one second you're hearing like, it's okay to have sex, but then the next thing it's like, oh, but wait a minute, they need to be able to see it at a certain time. So I think it's a, it's a lot for it's regular heavy, people to process. Dude. It's heavy, Well, I know, yeah. but I'm just saying, it's, <laughs> look at all the signals that you're getting. I mean, you're, you're right, though. You know, it's like you're this like precious mm. person that we need to take care of and be careful of. But, and all the other imagery is, is, is related to that. You're, are you sick? Are you hurt? Right. Also, like, yeah. Are you suffering? This, we also see you as inextricably tied to like babies you know and babies are cute and you're cute and mm-hmm. like the, the brown belly is cute and we're gonna put like in these empire waist dresses that are kind of baby doll shaped and like what are we like what is all this what is yeah. all this you know like yeah. it, it does have a psychological impact yeah I, okay I just so. to make it clear for for any listeners are any of those fears that we talked about a little earlier are any of them supported by science like is there any merit to sex being able to lead to miscarriage early on or to harming the baby later on? Should people be careful? No. So there's no evidence to suggest that having sex does those things, okay? Um, We do still have this caveat for, like, high-risk pregnancies, you know? So, like, um, what is a high-risk pregnancy? That could be something, somebody who's at risk for placenta previa. That could be somebody who's carrying multiples. It's a huge category, but we do hold this caveat, right? And what that means, I mean, I don't know. But in my opinion, looking at the science, there's no reason why somebody should be avoiding having sexual intercourse. And even like, okay, so even high-risk pregnancies where they're worried about preterm labor, we will tell these women to go on bed rest. But here's the mind fuck here with that, okay? Bed rest does nothing to prevent preterm labor. And we know this. As, really? As medicine, we know this. We so why do they do it? We don't know what else to tell them. We don't know what else to tell them. Oh. We don't know huh. what else to do. Oh, I didn't so know we, that. I thought... tell them not to move. Oh, so basically they could sit or like sit on a couch, but basically yeah. now everyone's scared shitless, so they're like, yeah. go just go lie down. There is no correlation wow. to show that bed rest okay, 
actually prevents preterm labor, but we don't know what else to do, right? And they also are covering their asses a little bit. Yeah. You know, they don't want to like not tell you to do this and it could have helped. I don't know. Like, right. um, and the other part that I think is interesting is we never dive into like, well, what about sex do we think is dangerous? Is it her having an orgasm, like her uterus contracting that we're worried about? Is it about something entering the vagina? Mm. Is it semen in the vagina or uterus? Like, what is it? What do we think is going to, to cause this? And the few studies that there's a couple qualitative studies that look into this a bit. And what they find is that, or the couples in their sample, the ones who were worried about these negative obstetric events, didn't have a very accurate understanding of female reproductive anatomy in terms of what was going on there. I like, think that's 90% of men, though. Yeah, like <laughs> the penis is not going to go through the cervix and hit that. The baby. Yeah. It's not going to happen. You know, like that's not going to happen. Without being crass, are there positions that should be avoided, though? Yes, um, yes, that um, there should be. Um, so once once you hit the third trimester, once the uterus is large enough, that woman really wants to avoid laying on her back. That places a lot of pressure on blood vessels and nerves, right, and can cut off blood flow to the lower half of her body. It can be harmful, right? Harmful to the woman. Harmful to the woman and to the fetus, to be honest. Okay? Okay. So you want to avoid missionary position for that reason. But in my review, we find that it's still pretty common well into the third trimester. So that's an opportunity, I think, for prenatal providers to really emphasize that you can explore your sexuality during this time. You don't have to do the normal things. You don't have to do missionary style. You can explore new positions. And like the joints become relaxed during pregnancy because of um, hormones. Okay? So relaxin literally relaxes the joints. So you can, you're more flexible during pregnancy than other mm. times. So like you might be able to hit spots that you didn't <laughs> hit before. So go for it. My point here is that if, if a woman wants to have sex during pregnancy, she shouldn't be afraid of it harming the fetus. What's good for her is good for the baby. And if she's into it, go for it. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it. What are some positions that become more common or that are kind of more uh, recommended during pregnancy, especially third trimester? Um, you can try rear entry or, or otherwise known as doggy style, you know, so that way she's on her hands and knees and the pressure's off her back and that can be more comfortable. Um, the belly's not really in the way, so this is for more later in the pregnancy, side to side, but any kind of rear entry position. But also, you know, she can get on top. You can do reverse cowgirl. There's a lot of different, like, positions that accommodate that growing belly just fine and also give that woman some control in terms of like depth of penetration um, in case that's something that she's worried about. So your cervix might be really sensitive and you don't want, you mm. might not want anything to hit your cervix and you can have control right. of, of mm. that in, in different positions. I think it's a, it could be a great time to explore some new behaviors to add to your repertoire. So the only thing people should avoid is, is missionary basically. Mm-hmm. In the third trimester. In the third trimester. Yeah, in the third trimester. Is, yep. I, I know this is going to sound creepy, but how about oral sex with why is that going to sound creepy? No, I know, just because <laughs> I, I'm the guy creepy? here. Uh, so, like, is it okay for the guy to do that business down there? Oh, my yes. God, that did okay. sound creepy. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Wow. You should have stuck to your original question. <laughs> well, you know what I'm saying, right, Doc? So one of the reasons I went into the, doing this project with this review was also to talk about all the other behaviors beyond vaginal intercourse, right? So most of these studies equate sexual behaviors with penis and the vagina yeah. sex. And that's so heteronormative, and it's also just, it's boring, and it's not indicative of the lives that we we have, right? There are other behaviors, and we do engage in them, and pregnant people and their partners are no exception. In the literature, when I did the review, I don't see a decline in non-coital, non-penis vaginal sexual behaviors. They actually remain the same throughout the pregnancy, and I think that says something about 
the importance of these other behaviors, we shouldn't put vaginal intercourse at, as this gold standard, like this is the behavior that is the most important. There's other behaviors that are meaningful and intimate and fun and exciting. And oral sex can be absolutely one of those, especially for women. A lot of women need oral stimulation to reach orgasm. And just because they're pregnant doesn't mean that you can't do that. I have heard from some of like the women that I work with that like once they're really large, you know, that like navigating that is, is difficult <laughs> for them because like they want to be able to see their partner and if they can't see their partner, you know, um, down there that that is just, the pregnancy is distracting in that way. And I can, I can definitely, I can relate to that. Yeah. Okay. But the only thing that you want to avoid with oral sex though, in terms of medical reasons is not to blow any air into the vagina. This is so rare though. It's so rare for like oxygen to actually cause, you know, a problem there because it's, it's such an absorbent um, and vascular area. So, like, I'm not going to... You're going to scare people because now guys aren't going to breathe. You're going to have guys passing <laughs> out know, while going down. It out because it's such a rare thing to happen, okay. but I feel like doctors always bring that up, and I'm like, like, when has that ever happened? When has somebody blown air into the vagina and it caused, like, a stroke? Like, I don't think it's ever happened. <laughs> okay. But they're yeah, worried about we, it. We can skip it. So, there is, de- there is a decline in vaginal intercourse, but there's no decline decline in oral sex, masturbation, anal. Yeah, none of those things, right? And there are, my study I think was the first one to really do this. Um, people use sex toys during pregnancy. Um, you know, and that's, I don't know why we haven't treated pregnant people as just like we have every other sexual person. You know, like what we look at sex toys, we look at these other behaviors in other populations. Why not for pregnant women, yeah. you know? And yes, they're, they're using them together in partnered activities and alone. And hopefully we'll have more studies that look at this behavior in more detail beyond just what I have done. Um, but I will mention, though, that these behaviors are still not as common as vaginal intercourse. So I do, I recognize that. You know, I recognize that while these behaviors are more are steady across pregnancy, they are still being reported as less frequent than vaginal intercourse. That doesn't mean that people are having more of these non-coital, non-PIV kinds of things than, than PIV. I don't think so, but I think that when we have more studies like mine, when we have more education on this, I could see couples being able to more effortlessly communicate about what they want in the bedroom when they're when they're pregnant, so like I could see a woman be like, you know what, I'm not into having anything inside my vagina right now because I'm nervous, and it could be, you know, for whatever reason, but I really like the idea of you fingering me, you know, and let's try right. that. I just think that we haven't really given this population the green light to explore and experiment, you know, there's there's so much anxiety that we encroach on this, on this population, and we should really be encouraging this this population to use this opportunity to exercise their communication skills and to try new things. Right. So probably what often happens is one person, one sex, and the pregnant person's like, yeah, I'm not really feeling it. And so no sex happens, period. Yeah. Whereas yeah. they could, instead of having vaginal sex, mm-hmm. they could do all these other things and still mm-hmm. walk out of there with a smile. Mm-hmm. Now, I know we put a lot of pressure on the guys here, not knowing what to do, but how about the women and their sex drive? Is the sex drive pretty consistent? I originally wanted to include sexual functioning in my review article, in my review study, but as soon as I got started, I was like, oh God, like, I can't, I can't do this. There's too much. <laughs> and the reason for that is I, I really have a hard time with the scientific literature 
on that topic, that more broad sexual function topic. Part of the reason is it's really difficult to compare one study to another because we have defined sexual function and measured it in very different ways. Some people measure sexual function as just whether there's pain or not. Some people define mm -hmm. sexual function as behaviors and or presence of orgasm and lubrication and pain. We have different validated measures for it. And it's just, it's, it's difficult to it's make conclusions, to draw conclusions from it. And I think that we're also pretty biased. It's easy for us to jump to the conclusion that because there's a pretty major physiological change happening within this person's body, that any changes that are going to happen are because of those physiological changes, right? Mm. So we, we want to link things to hormonal changes and all that stuff while not pausing to think about. So I mentioned those men, remember, who had a hard time finding their partner sexually desirable mm. because of the pregnancy? Who says that women might not be having an issue with their libido during pregnancy for the same reason? Because they're, they're having a hard time finding themselves sexually desirable, their bodies mm. as sexy, you know, during pregnancy, or that because they sense this in their partner that it's then influencing them and their, their feelings, and that's what's causing lubrication issues or causing pain with sex because there's less lubrication. The low sexual functioning could be more of a response yeah. to the pregnancy rather than the pregnancy itself. Mm -hmm. Let's transition to post-pregnancy, because mm -hmm. part of your review was also about sex after childbirth, especially in that first year. You found the average time of people going back to having vaginal intercourse was somewhere between six and eight weeks after birth, right? That's correct. So that's the average. That means some people will start before that, some people will start a little after that. What's kind of the, the earliest that people start and by what time will most people have gone back to vaginal intercourse? That's a great question. It's one that I, I field quite often with new parents that I talk to. I think that six week mark is really interesting, right? Um, so the reason that we see the six to eight weeks postpartum popping up pretty frequently is oftentimes because that is when the woman who's just had a, a child goes back to her prenatal care provider and they check to make sure that the cervix has closed up um, appropriately. It should close up by six weeks. Mm. And that's why those doctors give that woman the clearance to now have vaginal intercourse again, because while that cervix is still open, it increases the chances of a uterine infection. Okay. So the go-ahead, the green light for sex at six weeks is not because we expect sex to now feel just like it used to before or that her body is necessarily ready for penetration. It's that the cervix has closed. That is it. That is all it's about. Mm. And I wish that more doctors would communicate that with, with these women because they think, okay, well, I've been given the green light and a lot of partners put a lot of stock in that visit. Right. Okay, yeah. well, We're going to wait for these six weeks and then... Yeah. That's circled on the calendar yeah. in the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. again. You know, remember, they're probably having had sex in the late third trimester so, that, so right. like, they're like okay let's let's do this I think there is this like anxiety to get back to normal in some some ways at that point and um, I've spoken just to, to many postpartum women who are in terms of their libido ready to have sex at that point I've talked to many women who are not but then feel pressure to have sex because they're supposed to be ready right mm. we think that that six-week mark tells us that we're they're supposed to be ready so according to the data the majority of couples do have sex at least once by 12 weeks so six to eight weeks being, being average, but closer to 12 weeks being when the majority have, have had sex. That doesn't mean that they're regularly having sex yet, though. Right. So we see that frequency in terms of pre-pregnancy levels, it's not, you're not going to come near that really until well past six months postpartum. And I can't tell you exactly when because most of the studies on postpartum sexuality end at either six months or one year postpartum. And 
there's not a lot of them. So we, we need more studies that look at the later end of the postpartum period and go beyond that year to, so that we can examine when couples are falling into more familiar patterns. But also, I think that we should, once again, pause and think about this, you know? They have just introduced a new human into their family. <laughs> and right. I think there's a lot of pressure to go back to normal, but, like, there is no going back. <laughs> this, yeah, this is the is new a, normal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a person came out of this person's body, right? And for a lot of couples, that's the priority right now, is keeping this baby alive and adjusting and figuring out new patterns. And they might not be that interested in having sex at that point. They're tired. Right. Their bodies are healing. There's um, there's a study that's not included in my review. It's a Van Anders 2012 paper that looks at partners okay, and how and their experiences with sexuality post post baby. And we see that with these individuals, they also have a little less interest in in sex post post childbirth. So it's not just physiological. So it's just it's just the way it is for a lot of couples. We're we're navigating a new family, a new way of living, and Sex can be very important, and it can you can still put a pause button on it. It doesn't mean that you're saying that this is not an important aspect of my life, but right now something else is going to take, take priority. Yeah, I mean, okay. evolutionarily it makes sense, right? You just gave birth to this new human being, and your priority in that moment is to make sure that human survives as opposed to trying to make more new humans. Yeah, so. yeah absolutely. Well, it's also that third person involved as well who mm -hmm. could make life much more difficult in terms of not sleeping yeah. or feeding and stuff like right. that. A, well, right, right, right. So that in addition yeah. to it. But even even if you said you, you had all the help in the world and yeah. you weren't tired mm -hmm. and you weren't exhausted and, and stressed, still, yeah, so. speaking, yep. it makes sense to refocus yeah. your time and energy on keeping this human alive as opposed to mm -hmm. making more. We do see, though, in terms of like the behaviors, I think this is interesting. That's one I like sharing. Um, masturbation, according to the science that we have available to us, is the first behavior to reach pre-pregnancy levels, right? So mm. solo masturbation. Um, For the father or the the mother? Both, and both people. Oh, right? okay. Yeah, right? So um, I think this is this is pretty makes I think this makes sense right um, yeah. it's easier to masturbate you know, than to have partner activities especially when there's a baby involved we likely need another adult to be watching this child pretty much right. around right. the clock <laughs> they don't sense. sleep a right. whole lot solo activities yes definitely yeah, easier to pull activities. off I'll be but, back in uh, five minutes can you watch the kid yeah yeah, yeah. and at, once again more frank conversations amongst partners about this you know like to talk about it like hey I'm gonna go do this like you know make priority for both partners to be able to do that but it's still not as, as common as vaginal intercourse, which I think is interesting. Right. How about vaginal pain around this? Hmm. Now you can sort of assume that part of the reason why people are waiting or not having it as often as they used to is related to pain to some extent. Yeah. Um, so the women that were included in, in the studies that I looked at for that particular review, pain was most often reported at 12 weeks postpartum. And that makes sense too, right? So th about three months because most people have tried having sex at 12 weeks. Mm -hmm. So they haven't had an opportunity to feel vaginal pain during sex before 12 weeks. Right. Does that make right. sense? Right? And then we see that declining by about six months. But vaginal pain, um, dyspareunia, pelvic pain um, during sex after childbirth is real for a lot of women. And having a C-section doesn't necessarily protect from that either. You know, So we're seeing vaginal pain, pain with sex for for women regardless of the delivery mode. You just took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah. I was wondering if your postpartum stats would differ between the C-section and the natural births. And that's exactly the next question <laughs> I was going to ask. Um, we do 
see some differences. So, like, if um, the delivery mode matters here, okay, it, it matters in when um, couples start to have penetrative sex again. It also matters with um, how that sex is going to feel. The nuance in pain is that women who have had, who've needed stitches because of perennial tearing or an episiotomy, they're more likely to report the pain that they experience as being severe compared to mild. But regardless of whether it's a C-section or a vaginal delivery, we're seeing most women reporting at least mild to moderate vaginal pain the, the first time that they have penetrative sex. Even with C-section? Even with a C-section. Wow. Yeah. Is there a difference in how quickly people get back to, to having sex or frequency of sex depending on the mode of delivery? Yeah, and once again, it's going to go back to, like, were there stitches? Was there mm. tearing? You know, and for, for the women who who squeak by without any tearing or stitches, they are going to recover faster and they're, they're going to not feel that pain um, a lot sooner than the other women. Are the C-section women closer to the vaginal delivery without or with episiotomy? Um, oh, that's a good question. I think some of what's going on with, with pain is also... Um, Okay, so it has to do with lubrication and stretching too, you know? So mm. estrogen, you need higher estrogen to for the vagina to be elastic. We think that, you know, once she's pushed out a baby that her vagina is loose. It's not, okay? It's actually often described as being tighter um, because mm-hmm. it's not stretching and accommodating um, what you're putting in it um, as easily because of decreased estrogen. Oh, and I didn't know that. Wow. So was that just like a myth? Uh, I think people just... It logically made sense to them. Well, there's a large, you know, baby that came out of you, and so now you have this loosey goosey vagina, and it's just, it's, it's not true. Vaginas are meant to expand and, and go back to size. It doesn't happen instantly, but it, it does happen, right? Um, but so when you think, okay, think back to um, the studies and, and what we know about the very first time someone with a vagina has sex, right? And they report pain with that sex, and it's because it's usually linked to not giving the body enough time to get aroused and um, lubricated and lubricate, right? Um, so the pain comes with friction and it feels really tight, right? But that tightness is because of that friction and it's because of lack of lubrication and because you haven't given the body enough time to start to tent, you know, so the cervix pulling up and allowing the vagina to want to expand and stretch. Same after baby, right? So either you're rushing it and there's also, there's that there's the decreased estrogen that's not allowing that stretching and that lubrication to happen as, as quickly. And also, she probably has it, she's probably nervous, you know, like she's probably nervous about having anything inside her vagina for the first time after pushing out that baby. And if she had a C-section, she might be nervous about how is this going to feel on my incision or the fact that I haven't actually had anything inside my vagina in a while and what is this going to feel like? And that anxiety can also, you know, reduce arousal and lubrication and cause pain. It's almost like being a born-again virgin. It's like, it's almost like <laughs> having your first time again, right? In a lot of ways. Because you described so. a lot of the same issues happening yeah. again in their mm-hmm. life. Like, oh, wait a minute. I remember when it was like shitty sex that first time. Yeah. Is it going to be like that again? We still have doctors that do an extra stitch, too, for women who do need stitches, um, who will stitch the vagina tighter. And they call it the husband stitch so that... <laughs> She feels nice and tight after after childbirth, and it feels good for him. No Even way. Though, oh, wow. Oh, yes. Ugh, oh, yes. The Even husband's stitch. It's more likely to cause pain for her. And if she's having painful sex, she's more likely to say no to sex. So, like, it's, it's bad for everybody. And it makes it so that it takes longer for her to heal, and it also impacts stretching. So... Stitching unnecessarily will cause more scar tissue, and scar tissue doesn't stretch. And doctors are doing this? Doctors are doing this. But don't they have the same information that you do? (laughs) Are you the only one privy to this? Yeah. Doctors are doing this. Wow. Anything else people should know or you want them to know about sex during pregnancy and or post-childbirth? 
pregnancy or a new child does not mean that the couple's sex life is a disaster. It just doesn't. It does not have to be that way if it is. And while it's going to look differently for different couples, but we have got to stop this narrative that pregnancy or introducing a child into your family ruins your sex life, okay? Because it's it's instilling this, like, bias that makes us actually act out those beliefs. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, we, we think that this is how it's supposed to be, and so the minute something changes, we assume it's because this is, this is just what life is like with a child, and so we never, we don't do anything about it, you know? So if, it, if sex lives do decline during this time and then stay that way, I don't think it's because of the pregnancy. I don't think it's because of the child. I think it's largely because of our culture and the way that we think about parenthood. If your sex lives are important to you, if your, relation, your sexual relationship with your partner is important, there's no reason why it needs to disappear just because there's a pregnancy or a child that's been introduced. Right, and there's, then if it does decline, that it's not necessarily the end of the world. Yeah, right? exactly. I think mm-hmm. you made a permanent. Right, it's not permanent. You, I think you made that point in the, in the paper that a lot of the time, People are not necessarily distressed about mm-hmm. this decline in frequency, and they're not distressed, then why are you making a problem out of something that isn't Absolutely. a problem? One of um, the next areas of, of research in this area that I'm going into um, is looking at expectations during pregnancy. So like, mm. what did you think your sex life was going to be like? And then comparing that in a longitudinal way to what actually happened. Oh, and yeah. seeing if there's differences between the couples who expected some like really negative Changes. experiences and then mm. had actually pretty okay experiences and how does that impact their sexual satisfaction and their relationships but the impact of what those preconceived notions have on on our reality and that other preconceived notion too is how you look at your partner after the baby and you don't see her as a woman anymore and you see her more as a mother Absolutely. we go back to that you know how we said they look different you look at them differently when they're pregnant but how about when they're now the mother of your child I'm sure yeah. that has some sort of mental effect to the, yeah. the male partner or, or how do you reconcile partner. that absolutely uh, my guess is going to be no to this but do you have any data on whether observing the birthing process mm-hmm. for men can increase that notion of oh my god that's no longer a place for me to put my penis in because the oh. baby just came out of there that's such a good question you know nobody that before. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a really, really I want to know this. And no, we don't know it. You're right. I don't know it. I mean, I'm, I would venture that I would have come across this in the literature by now. Mm. Considering no one's that asked I this, this huh? all the time. But um, yeah, let, let me write that one down. Thank <laughs> <you>. <laughs> yeah, I would love to know if, if just being present for that baby coming out of there. So let's do that study. Me and you, come on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, done. I'll make the photocopies. I don't know. Well, I never thought I learned so much about pregnancy women. Thank you so much, Dr. Sophia Jared Wessel. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And for the listeners, please do watch her TED Talk called Lies We Tell Pregnant Women. Thank you. Bye. The Science of Sex Afterglow. A clinical social worker from Philly wrote an article that she's seeing more and more teens announcing that they were transgender out of the blue. They are usually assigned female at birth, now around 14 to 15 years old, and that they never really expressed dissatisfaction with their gender until now. Instead, the author writes, many of these kids are on the autism spectrum, quirky, and struggling socially and or psychologically. She argues that many of these kids are not really transgender, and they shouldn't be immediately offered medical intervention like hormones and surgery. I know that's a lot to unpack there, Dr. (laughs) Jana, but... What's going on? Are these kids transgender or are, is it too early? What's, what's happening with their decisions here? Oh, my God. There is so much to unpack yeah. here. Yeah. We usually tend to think of trans people 
as people who've been identifying with the gender that they were not assigned at birth from a very early age. So kids usually start to become aware of their gender identity around age three. And then very often, the kids who then grow up to be trans folks will have an issue with the gender that they were assigned at birth around that age. And so they will start cross-gender behavior or uh, ask for a cross-gender name or toys or all that from this very early age. And then... In many cases, this doesn't necessarily persist into adulthood, but the longer it persists, because for some kids, it literally is a phase yeah. that they're going to outgrow and and never return to it. And for some kids, it's going to persist. And the longer it persists, the higher the chances that that person will end up identifying as trans in adulthood and go through hormones and surgery and all of that. The one thing that you probably heard me say really like the out of the blue part. Right. Now, when she's saying out of the blue, this this writer, the social worker. So basically up until these kids were 14, 15, there was no sign mm-hmm. of any of that you were just explaining, right. whether they, you know, in terms of like the way they were mm-hmm. being, their, their names and everything like that. So what, what happened at this point at 14, right. 15? Right, so that's, that's kind of the... The interesting kind of unusual thing that's happening here, because if there was no indication whatsoever, and then this is the first time that they're coming out. So on one hand, what what could be happening is that they never felt comfortable expressing it before, that they were still feeling it. They just didn't express it. So that's that's fully possible. But uh, what this person is claiming and what there is research to suggest is that gender identity issues are more common among people who have other kind of developmental issues like autism or mm. autism spectrum. I actually just wrote a, a Forbes article a few weeks ago on on that very issue that uh, summarizing all the research that we have on transgender issues being more common among people with autism spectrum disorder and vice versa. Mm. Autism spectrum traits and characteristics and disorders being more common among kids and adults and teens who have gender dysphoria or uh, kind of this, this uh, sense of being a gender different than the one yeah. that were assigned at birth. And so what could be happening, we don't have a lot of research on this. This is kind of a new thing that we're be- beginning now to really see because as being trans has become more and more acceptable, as more more parents are being kind of aware of this, more open to accepting the transition of their children, I think this is one of the things that we are now seeing more. And it is possible that these kids are not necessarily transgender in the sense that they're going to end up identifying as trans and wanting to live as trans or as the other gender, not the one assigned to them at birth for the rest of their lives. It could be that they're going through a phase of some sort that may be driven by also by some other difficulties like like autism or some other, like as she's saying, quirky or struggling socially or psychologically. There may be some other diagnoses that are going on there as well. And this is just one of the constellation of things that they have focused on or thought about. Now, the one thing that you've brought up is the fact that, you know, how transgender folk are being more and more accepted. But also think about people on the autism spectrum are mm-hmm. being more and more right. accepted. Mm-hmm. So it's two obviously different <laughs> things we're talking about, but it's two things that we're really just scratching at the surface that we're learning about. Mm-hmm. So can you imagine how much mm-hmm. that talk about a, a lot to unpack? Oh, yeah. Because autism has come a long way in just the last few years. And so is transgender folk. Put those two together. That's a <laughs> lot. Oh, for sure. So now the question becomes 
What do you do with these kids when they out of the blue come out as transgender at the age of 13, 14, 15? So as we're becoming more accepting of being trans, more and more parents and therapists are kind of quick to rush into, okay, you say you're trans, that means you're trans. Let's start you on a, on a hormone regimen and then let's get you surgery as, as soon as possible, which very often can happen around age 16. So they might put you on puberty blockers if you haven't yet reached puberty, like drugs that will delay right. puberty from happening until you've had a little more time to think about it. Wow. But these kids are usually post-puberty. So they can't put them on puberty blockers anymore. But what they can do is put them on cross-gender hormones. And that can happen. It really depends. It depends on who the therapist is and, and what the parents want to do. But it is possible to get on these cross-gender hormones from this relatively early wow. age and also even to do uh, surgeries. Now, hang on a second because this is fascinating. So has the medical community weighed in on what's an acceptable age that this should be starting on? Kind of. They're saying that the puberty blockers are fine to do yes. for the kids who are pre-puberty. And then if the kids are still identifying as trans and want to get on cross-gender hormones, then you can start those at 16 and then at 18 to perform the surgeries. Boy, that is such a tough decision to make. At oh, six, for sure. For a 16-year-old? Yeah. Now, the pro of that is that there is evidence that the kids who went through that, so had their puberty blocked early and then uh, started cross-sex hormones early and then transitioned fully with surgeries and everything mm -hmm. early, that they have better psychological outcomes. Oh, wow. Okay. Because they're not bullied as much. Their physical bodies are more likely to look the way that they right. feel. That internal fight is it, gone, right? Essentially, is, right? Is a lot easier to kind of deal with, right. both because people perceive you in a certain way, in the, mm -hmm. in the way that you want to be perceived, and because you are kind of validating your own sense of self uh, in, in that way, and, and the, the hormones and the surgeries are helping with that. The negative, the con, I guess, or the risk, is that these kids may not end up being trans for life kind of thing, that it might be a phase, it might be driven by some other issues and not real transgender identity, and that by immediately putting them on cross-sex hormones and offering them surgeries, that we might be taking these medical interventions that are unnecessary and that the kids are going to regret, you know, two years down the line, five years wow. down the line. And we just don't have enough research, we don't have enough data over time to know what is going on. So so there's been a, this big, big debate between those parents and therapists and trans activists who are arguing that the minute someone says I'm trans, that they should immediately be put on this regiment to transition and, and do the gender confirmation hormones and surgeries. And then other people who are saying, let's wait a little bit. Let's kind of give people a chance to really think through that. Wow. And then if they really want to down the line, they can make those decisions but let's not do it immediately. And I think it's a case-by-case -case scenario. So in these cases of the out-of-the-blue transgender, I think if this is coming up for the first time at the age of 14, then... Pump the brakes, you're saying. Slow down. Yeah, for something like that, I would yeah. probably be like, okay, let's see, where is this coming from? Yeah. What is being caused by this? And also, a lot of the time, the discomfort that people, especially in these cases, they're female assigned at birth. So, so these are adolescent girls, basically, who are experiencing some level of discomfort with their gender. And many times it seems like that discomfort is driven more by the gender roles that are being assigned to them as women, like the kinds of expectations that they think they have to conform to as women to look a certain way or behave yeah. a certain way or uh, want certain things or have certain uh, professional interests and all of that. And if they feel 
like that's not authentic to them. One way to kind of come to terms with that is to say, oh, I'm trans and that's why I feel uncomfortable with some of these roles. And so part of what some of these parents are saying is give these girls more options for how they can be girls in a not particularly girly way necessarily. But that goes back to your point about the research. I mean, we're going to have to like buckle down and wait 10, 15, 20 years before we really know. Exactly. And how we can really tell who's going to regret Mm -hmm. transitioning and want to detransition and what are the factors and can we somehow, because that's the key, can we somehow tell who these people are going to be before or we put them through yeah. the whole transition process. But it's so easy for us. Like, I'm very conservative when it comes to making big decisions with my mm. life. And I could just imagine people saying, well, what's the rush? Slow down. But you don't know that in- the internal struggle that that person's going through. Mm-hmm. Maybe waiting does more damage than, oh, than the opposite. You absolutely. know what I mean? So it's and, so and tough to figure As I said, there out. is research to suggest that when these kids truly are trans folks, that it does help them tremendously to transition early. The more they wait, yeah. the more distress, the more negativity, the more bullying they're going to experience and all that. So in those cases, it really does help to transition early. But the question is, are all cases, is every single time somebody says I'm trans or I'm of the other gender, not the one assigned to me at birth, do we immediately put them on a regimen to change to transition? Yeah. Well, you know, we've come a long way in this subject in just a short amount of time over the last few years. I'd love to hop in, and I'm sure you would too, like hop in a time machine and see like 50 years from now. Yeah, we've we've had a tremendous progress and change in the way we think about these things. And, and yeah, I would love to see what happens in 50 years. Maybe, and maybe we'll even be alive, maybe. Uh, would I, 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 I have a chance of being alive in 50 years? Mine is probably a little bit less. <laughs> so I'm going to go work on our time machine. Okay. And uh, I'll meet you back here next week, okay? Bye. Bye. The Science of Sex is produced in New York City. To connect with the hosts, go to drjana.com and joepartavila.com. Like us on Facebook at the Science of Sex Podcast or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod. For more sex science, read Dr. Jana's column at Forbes.com. This has been The Science of Sex. 